Just a quick note before we get started that our interview with Dr. Harvey Chachanov will take place over two episodes. Here we go with part one. About Empathy is a podcast about patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. This podcast gives voice to their stories. With each episode, we hope these engaging discussions inspire you to have more empathic, authentic, and compassionate conversations. I'm Dr. Dori Sekaracha, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Dr. Irene Yang. And I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani. For years, we have worked together, taught together, and learned from each other in our roles as palliative care physicians. Thank you for listening. Today, we're so fortunate to be talking with Dr. Harvey Chachanov, a distinguished professor of psychiatry at the University of Manitoba and senior scientist, Cancer Care Manitoba Research Institute. Among his many accomplishments, he leads the research team that pioneered the Dignity Model and Dignity Therapy, and he's the co-founder of the Canadian Virtual Hospice, which is the world's largest repository of web-based information and support for dying patients, their families, and healthcare providers. He's won the Prose Award for his 2011 book, Dignity Therapy, Final Words for Final Days, and he's just published a new book, Dignity and Care, the human side of medicine, which I can't wait to read. And just to reassure you, he wasn't being lazy in the 11 years between the two books. He is the co-editor of the Handbook of Psychiatry and Palliative Medicine and the Journal of Palliative and Supportive Care, in addition to over 300 publications. He has received countless prominent research, academic, and clinical awards throughout his career. Just to mention a few, there's the Canadian Medical Association Highest Award, the FNG Star Award, the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal, and the Order of Manitoba. He is also an officer in the Order of Canada. And in 2020, he was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. All I can say is, wow, a real icon in palliative care. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Dr. Chachanov. My pleasure. There's just so many aspects of your work that I have followed and admired. One that I've especially found very helpful and useful in practice is the patient dignity question or the PDQ. And I'd love to hear you talk about it and how you feel it can be helpful to all healthcare providers wanting to deliver the best compassionate care they can. Well, thank you. And it's an interesting place for us to start the conversation because in some ways, I mean, the PDQ or the patient dignity question really, you know, strikes at the heart of how do we put personhood on the clinical radar for healthcare providers? And even though, I mean, as your introduction points out, I mean, my work has largely been in the realm of palliative care. Many of some of these kind of novel innovations and insights, I mean, I think have resonance across the entire spectrum of medicine. So, well, personhood is exquisitely important when you're dealing with somebody who's approaching end of life. The reality is who you are as an individual is important throughout the entirety of your life. We in our work have tried to develop various different ways of affecting the lens, if you were, of the healthcare provider. I mean, how do we alter the gaze of the person who's providing care? Because we know, especially in this day and age of technology-laden medicine, the gaze tends to be very biological, tends to be Mm -hmm. very focused Mm -hmm. on the physiology, those all-important mechanics of what is happening to the patient. 
But what we frequently lose sight of is, you know, who is that person? Because seeing patients as an amalgam of limbs and organs and orifices and fluids, well, it might be convenient and accurate clinically. It is diminishing in terms of how people feel the experience when they enter into the healthcare system. So the patient dignity question was one of many ways, but it was perhaps the most concise way Mm. that we could try and put personhood on the clinical radar. And so essentially what the PDQ does is it engages patients in what is meant to be a brief conversation, Mm -hmm. which is something that, of course, everyone in healthcare who is told about or hears me speaking about the humanities of care saying, well, you know, how do we find the time to do that? The PDQ is meant to be a brief way of eliciting issues related to personhood. So we go to the bedside of the patient and we say something to the effect, you know, we know a whole lot about you clinically, but what we don't know very much about is who you are as a person. And so can you tell me what we would need to know about you as a person in order to provide you the best care possible? And What patients end up telling us in a very short period of time are things like core values, beliefs, the things that they are worried about or the people they're still responsible to. Actual examples from the PDQ include, I'm a survivor of childhood abuse, or I am caring for a partner who is dealing with dementia. I was just working on an article in which one of the responses to the PDQ, I'm a former department chair of medicine. And what we find in our experience, is that that profoundly, I mean, how could it not? It profoundly changes the way the healthcare provider sees and experiences the patient. And we know from our work that that is perhaps the single most significant thing that will determine if a patient feels that they've received dignity and care, that their dignity has been upheld. When you were talking, it reminded me of meshing that art and science of medicine. And a lot of the art of it is getting at the PDQ, is trying to understand the person, right? And really, it's a lot of the foundations of palliative care. And really, you know, should be foundational to the practice of medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, during COVID, it has been very challenging for all of us in healthcare to try and meet the needs of patients and to try and have the time and the wherewithal and the ability to acknowledge personhood. So one of the interesting studies that we actually did during the pandemic is we engaged families in a PDQ study of patients who were being seen in intensive care. So all of these patients that we saw were, Mm -hmm. for the most part, on ventilators, uh, you know, not communicative in any way, shape or form. And we approached the family member to ask, again, we know a lot about this person who's on a ventilator now fighting for their life, but we don't know a lot about who they are. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that the response from families was extraordinary. I mean, one woman, a First Nations patient, and the daughter told us about the fact that her mother was a community leader, a role model. Because what we do is we summarize these conversations Mm -hmm. and then place that summary with the patient's permission or the family member's permission onto their chart. Mm -hmm. And what this young woman told us is, you know, that she'd been struggling throughout her mother's hospitalization to find a way of letting the healthcare staff know that her mother was no ordinary person. Mm, right. And this provided her an entry point, a way of being able to say, this is the person you're looking after. Yeah, I could see that being so powerful. And I think that would be helpful to anyone reading the chart 
Yeah. It's hard to imagine how asking that question isn't helpful, but I can remember times in practice when no matter how hard I tried, even using all the things that I learned through reading your work about dignity that I still felt stuck sometimes because the patient continued to suffer in a way that I felt, oh, I'm just not doing enough. Do you have any experiences with that? Or what do you do if that ever happens to you? I mean, suffering is a really important issue in medicine and, and in the human experience. And I think the kind of thing that you're talking about really, in my mind, kind of elicits some of the work that we have done in looking at elements of effective therapeutic communication. And one of the elements that we identify and that needs to be acknowledged is what we called therapeutic humility. Mm -hmm. So therapeutic humility is really kind of this understanding that we need to change our expectations okay. in terms of what happens at the bedside, what happens clinically, and that oftentimes as clinicians, we are trained, it becomes kind of part of our DNA to diagnose and to fix. Yep. That's the ethos of contemporary medicine. You know, you, you radiate, you medicate, you cajole somehow, you know, these wayward processes to act in a way that is quote unquote normal. That's our job. That's our skill set. Right. Therapeutic humility, in my mind, I mean, acknowledges the fact that suffering is a part of the human experience and that there are things that we will encounter that really don't lend themselves well to the model of yeah. diagnose, medicate, yeah. fix. And there are so many examples that we encounter in our practice of that. There are patients whose suffering is going to be more resistant. Yeah. There are sources of suffering that aren't changeable. I mean, yes. how do you eliminate the suffering of somebody who has suffered a substantive loss, loss of function, loss of a loved yeah. one in their life. So what therapeutic humility does for the healthcare provider is it says you need to be able to sometimes let go of that diagnose and fix agenda and understand that your therapeutic abilities really derive from your willingness to show up, to be at the bedside. Yeah. To bear witness, right. one of the things that we've developed, you know, in the course of our research is something called the patient dignity inventory, which is a, an inventory of items that mm -hmm. have psychological, physical, existential issues. For example, might be, you know, feeling like a burden or I no longer feel like the person I once was, which, by the way, is a profound existential question that we have found in our experience, yep. I mean, patients say is vital in terms of whether or not they feel personhood is intact or you know that it would undermine their sense of dignity. The point I was going to make is that sometimes clinicians have said to me, well, what's the good of knowing that? Because what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, what am I supposed to do hmm. with the fact that someone feels like a burden or someone no longer feels like the person they once were? And I would say that if you understand the importance of therapeutic humility, then you know that what becomes important is letting go of this idea that you are there to fix. And instead, you are there to be present, to be present with, yeah. rather than to be fixing for. And so it's, again, the opening of a longer conversation we could have. But I think that it comes down to, in part, you know, the mindset of the provider and not feeling helpless and disempowered just because you and the patient are grappling with something that's bigger than both of you. That was wonderful. I'm glad our listeners can hear that 
the expectation sometimes we feel when we're learning medicine or I'm sure for nursing is that there are expectations that if we just do our job well enough, you know, we will be able to make people feel better. So I love this concept. So thank you very much. That was great. And just to kind of finish that off, I mean, you know, if you think about sort of the prototype of a clinical encounter in which therapeutic humility would be of quintessential importance would be bereavement, loss. People always struggle yeah. with, you know, so what do I say when I go into the room of somebody who's just suffered, you know, this loss? And the truth is that there's really nothing you can say that is going to mm-hmm. take away that pain. But what you can do is you can show up. You can show up you can be there. And to have faith that, you know, your being there makes a difference. It's important because otherwise, you know, families feel abandoned, that in the face of, you know, the most difficult thing that they've ever encountered, those of us who feel helpless sometimes feel inclined not to show up. And the importance of what I'm saying is show up. Uh, Even if your hands are empty or you feel your hands are empty, show up. Right. Very important. Yeah, no, I think that's a great message for us and I think for all of us. And, you know, we've talked about this on other episodes of the podcast in terms of presence and and using silence as a tool and being there and, you know, not necessarily having the feeling that you have to jump in and fix something, especially if there's nothing to fix because there's a profound and tremendous loss. Thank you for that. I think that concept of therapeutic humility, I think will come in really handy for a lot of our listeners. Mm -hmm. Yes. I also wanted to talk a little bit about an interesting article that you wrote called The Platinum Rule, Mm. a new standard of person-centered care. So can you share with us what that platinum rule is and how it relates to your work with dignity? Well, you know, the platinum rule has been an interesting experience, you know, as a researcher and as a writer. Although I've had many publications over the course of, you know, a 30 plus year career, the uptake with the platinum rule has been something that has been really quite I mean, in my experience, unprecedented. Mm. The paper on the platinum rule, which was first published in the Journal of Palliative Medicine, didn't come out not even a year. Within the first two weeks of it being published, I had heard from two different colleagues from different parts of the country saying that they had attended a seminar on EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusiveness, Mm -hmm. and the platinum rule had been quoted, had been cited. Mm. Before I kind of explain what it's about, the point is that it seems to have pushed some buttons and quite globally and that I mean I've read blogs mm-hmm. on the platinum rule some in the United States some as far away as India talking about the importance of the platinum rule and again just before I get to talking about the details of it it also seems to have very quickly kind of transcended palliative care mm-hmm. I was reading an article that was in plus one on people who were practicing athletic therapies, athletic therapists who were dealing with athletes Mm. and talking about the importance of person-centered care. And in it, they were talking about the fact that, you know, the platinum rule was now the new standard of person-centered care. Wow. What is the platinum rule? Well, the platinum rule kind of begins with, or reflections on the platinum rule begin with reflection on the golden rule. So the golden rule is, of course, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And of course, the golden rule has been part of, you know, many religious traditions across millennium. But the important feature of the golden rule is it says that we somehow need to use our perceptions, Mm. reflect on our needs, our wants, and use those as a gold standard for guiding us in terms of how we ought to proceed forward. So if I kind of think about what would I want in this circumstance, 
I use myself as kind of this barometer, this gold standard that gauges how I should or ought to respond to you. A very important place to begin providing, you know, compassionate care. Geez, you know, if I were in this situation, what would I want for myself? The difficulty or the problem with that is that we aren't an infallible measure of what someone else wants, because the fact is that other people have different lived experiences. I've written now two articles. One was in the Journal of Palliative Medicine, and the other one appeared in JAMA Neurology. The first one provided a case example of, and these are actual examples, this was an an elderly gentleman. He had been diagnosed with uh, some kind of a, uh, I think it was a head and neck malignancy, and he sits down with his medical oncologist who says something to the effect, you know, I'm worried that you could be facing a really difficult course. And at some point, you might want to consider medical assistance in dying. And the point that I make in the article is that the patient had no interest in that whatsoever. He had a very good quality of life. He had a large family. He lived in a rural setting, very much connected with the earth and growing things. And he was interested in trying to, you know, extend his days Mm -hmm. to the extent that medicine might be able to provide him and, in fact, received some therapies and was able to achieve what he felt was a very good quality of life. This got me thinking then, so what goes on inside of the mind of a healthcare provider who's making such a recommendation? Well, obviously, he's looking at this through a lens that has been shaped by, you know, the way that he has been socialized, the way that he's been raised. And in contemporary Western society, I mean, we're, you know, raised to think of, you know, wealth, beauty, power. These are the things that seem to have the highest profile and the most influence. And other things may be deemed to have lesser value. And that's not to say anything negative about the fact that we have biases. It's just to say that it is a reality of what it is to be human. We're influenced in ways that affect our gaze. And we need to be able to acknowledge that. Because if we don't, Mm. and I think what probably happens in that instance is that we say, geez, you know, if I were in that situation... I know that I wouldn't want to be walking that course. And so we end up either recommending or not recommending things that are going to ensure that the patient doesn't walk down a course that we would find Hmm. reprehensible, that we would find intolerable. And so the platinum rule is a slight shift of the golden rule, which says, well, do unto others as they would want done unto themselves. Mm -hmm. In other words, what it puts first and foremost is to say, we need to acknowledge that we all have bias. You know, we all have a particular lens that we see the world through. Again, it's part of being human. And it doesn't invariably lead to insights that are going to be congruent with where the patient is coming from. And so we need to In every instance, you know, whatever our first inclination is, you know, geez, I think I know what I would want for myself is to take one step further and say, but, you know, I really need to put myself in the place of the patient or I need to find out what is the patient's perspective. In palliative care, by the way, I mean, the other place in which we have done this, and again, you know, this is sort of an instance of kind of old wine in a new bottle, but we know that, you know, if we are having a conversation with a family of an individual who can no longer speak on their behalf, the right question isn't, so what do you think? What would you want done in this instance? The right question is, if we could bring your mother into this room, if we could bring your father into this room, you know, a month ago, two months ago, what would they want done in this instance? So it's not a gold standard. It's a platinum standard that guides our decision making. 
And then the second article that I wrote about the platinum rule was an article in which I told the story of my sister, Ellen, and I called the article Seeing Ellen, The Platinum Rule. She died quite a number of years ago, but when she was in hospital at one point in time, and this preceded her death by many years, she was going into respiratory distress, was in intensive care, and a decision was about to be made as to whether or not she should be intubated. Mm. And again, I won't give away the entirety of the article. All of my articles, by the way, are open access for people who are interested in, in reading them, as is Seeing Ellen, the Platinum Rule. It tells the story about an internist who, it appears, was only able to see the twisted body, you know, the kyphosis, mm. the scoliosis, and not the sister, the friend, the disability advocate, the avid reader, all of the things that Ellen was. So again, it's to say, we need to be very cautious when we use ourselves as the gold standard or measurement for what we think others might want because we aren't invariably successful in being able to determine mm. perspectives of others, especially when there's this incredible divergence between our lived experience and the lived experience of people that we're looking after. It's very, very well said. I think mm -hmm. we have to be aware of our blind spots and our assumptions yeah. and then how we bring those into the clinical encounter. And we have to be really cautious about that. And I think what you were explaining made me think about my patients quite a bit. It also makes me think about the concept of a good death and what a good death looks like and how we have to be also really cautious about what my good death you know, may look like will differ from yours, it will differ from someone else's. And so yeah. when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the myriad of decisions people have to make close to end of life and ensuring that I don't insert my preferences in those discussions. You're listening to About Empathy. This season of About Empathy has been funded by the Gold of Fine Award through the Temi Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. The Temi Latner Center for Palliative Care's vision is to allow patients and their families to experience a seamless system of caring through the embodiment of its core values of humanity, collaboration, innovation, and communication. To learn more, visit tlcpc.org. Welcome back to About Empathy. Dr. Tachinov, you mentioned in your first article about the patient to whom MAID was brought up, and that was something that he didn't even want to consider based on his own values. And now MAID has been legal in Canada for a bit over six years now. Have you seen a difference in how its introduction has changed how healthcare professionals have addressed dignity-related concerns? And if so, what differences have you maybe perhaps noticed? A big question, Irene. I'm not a MAID provider or a MAID assessor, mm. so I'm not necessarily ideally positioned to answer, you know, what is happening, you know, clinically. But I am a psychiatrist who is involved in dealing with patients who are struggling with issues, you know, related to sense of self and personhood and addressing issues related to the whole notion of dignity. The best way that I can answer that is to, again, hearken back to some of the work that I've been doing for a very long time in palliative care. And it's work that, you know, precedes made by several decades. I think we have to remind ourselves that a wish to die or a wish for an earlier death 
is something that has long been part of the experience of people who are nearing end of life. I mean, our group did some of the very, amongst the very first studies that looked at the notion of desire for death in the terminally ill. Again, we were not looking at people who outright were making requests for MAID, but people who wondered whether or not it might be in their best interest to die sooner than later. And so we produced a lot of data that basically said an ardent, significant desire for death we found was highly associated with depression. It was highly associated with pain. About 80% of people with a desire for death had pain of moderate severity or greater. And it was also associated with either the reality or the perception that family wasn't as available. You know, this is going back to publications in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. At that time, I mean, we were already beginning to try and understand the landscape of how do we understand the wish to die? And in fact, what differentiates people who do want to die earlier versus those who don't? So I think it really kind of paved the way for understanding how clinically we approach patients who are expressing their suffering in a way that says, I don't know if I want to go on living. The question of whether has made heightened or enabled those conversations. I'm not so sure that that's necessarily the right question, because I think the reality is that the question of exploring the wish to die is something that is part and parcel of good palliative care. Mm. And we need to know, and again, we have data to demonstrate that a wish to die is not atypical among somebody nearing end of life. You know, a wish to die is associated again with loss of sense of personhood, loss of sense of agency, undermining of sense of dignity. And those are the bread and butter of what we in palliative care are trying to understand, are trying to address, and in some of the work that we have done, you know, are trying to develop novel and innovative ways of trying to mitigate that kind of suffering. I remember your earliest work in dignity. I think you were looking at people who were considering going to other countries if I'm remembering it right, that you talked about they felt this loss of dignity, and that was one of the reasons that they were looking for a hastened death. And I think that was kind of a springboard for a lot of the work when I've read many of your articles. I mean, actually, the way that we came to study dignity was very directly related to the issue of euthanasia-assisted suicide. Mm. We had been conducting studies yeah. on desire for death and will to live, and at that time started to explore some of the studies that were coming out of the Benelux countries. And there was a, a study particularly that came out of Holland mm -hmm. in which the Dutch government was looking at trying to both understand the prevalence of what they called MDEL or medical decisions to end life, and as well to try and understand what was motivating patients to seek mm -hmm. out either euthanasia mm -hmm. or assisted suicide from these Dutch physicians. And what was reported is that loss of dignity was more highly cited than any other source of suffering or explanation. So loss of dignity exceeded things like pain or pain as part of a constellation of symptoms or tiredness of life, whatever that might mean. And again, some of these things weren't well defined. And so we looked at that and said, you know, first of all, this is information that's being gathered from the healthcare provider, not from the patient, him or herself. Secondly, dignity 
hasn't been clearly defined by these healthcare providers. I mean, they were asked, you know, why did your patient seek this out? And they said, lost sense of dignity without really any explanation mm. of what that meant. And finally, we said, if dignity is worth dying for, you know, then dignity is worth doing some research around. Because in the literature at that time, there, there was no empirical work on the issue of dignity. I mean, it was highly cited, highly politicized, highly polarized. You know, whatever contentious position you might support, for example, with euthanasia, you'd say, my body, my autonomy, my decisions, this is a dignity issue. And on the opposite side of that political fence, you would say, you know, the taking of human life, the Hippocratic Oath, this sounds like an affront to human dignity. But what we did is we tried to walk a road that was free of the politics and not taking a particular philosophical stance and said, we need to sit down at the bedside of patients and find out what do they mean? What do they understand? And, mm -hmm. and that really is how the whole area, the whole research agenda around dignity came into being. I think that's really helpful. And it leads nicely yeah. into the next question we had, which I think you touched on at the beginning about when we were talking about the patient dignity question and how clinicians will come to you and say, well, how do I have the time for this? Or how do I incorporate this into my practice? And you said, well, you know, it doesn't really take all that much time to incorporate that. So I wonder if we could get some other suggestions for you just in this world that we're living, this time pressured, overwhelmed healthcare system where a lot of clinicians feel really burned out. You know, how do they incorporate other elements of dignity care into their practice and helping people feel that this idea of being busy is a reason not to provide empathic or compassionate care. I don't think people opt in or out of being empathic or compassionate. I think there are, are system issues that sometimes drive the behavior in the conversation. So what other offerings or suggestions do you have for clinicians? And remember to join us next week for part two of our amazing interview with Dr. Chachana. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is much to be learned in the stories of the people we care for and work with. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic conversations. We'll be back next week with another story. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. Each episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sekaraccia, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner and Sarah May. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded virtually and funded by the Gold of Fine Award through the Temi Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.